Welcome to No Rain Date, a community podcast about local news and people. No Rain Date is a production of Saucon Source LLC. For more local news and information, please visit SaucinSource.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 23 of No Rain Date, the podcast of Sock and Source. I'm Josh Popachak, the publisher of Sock and Source and your host for No Rain Date. And these are the headlines that everybody's talking about in Sock and Valley for the week ending October 9th, 2020. There was a big police incident on Silver Creek Road earlier this week in which Bethlehem Police and the Northampton County Drug Task Force moved in to execute a search warrant on a home in the 2200 block of Silver Creek Road. Two people were arrested as a part of that police activity. They were James Michael Hero, 47, and Angela Beth Laura, 44. According to police and court documents, James Michael Hero refused to comply with the instructions of police officers who were attempting to handcuff him. He resisted arrest, allegedly, and also allegedly attempted to grab the end of one of the officer's rifles. The police complaint filed in the case says, quote, at least three officers were required to use force to break Hero's grip on the rifle and then ultimately take him into custody, end quote. Police said that during a search of the home, they found 13 bags containing a, quote, crystal-like substance, end quote, plastic bag containing psilocybin mushrooms, packaging materials, digital scales, and $458 in cash. Police said that field testing of the crystalline substance was positive for the presence of methamphetamine, and also that field testing of the mushroom, or one of the mushrooms, was positive for the presence of psilocybin, which is a chemical compound found in some types of mushroom, colloquially known as magic mushrooms, uh, that can produce a hallucinogenic effect if ingested. Both of the arrestees in this case are facing multiple charges. Both were committed to Northampton County Prison in lieu of $50,000 bail at a preliminary arraignment in front of District Judge Alan Medge on Monday. Preliminary hearings for James Hero and Angela Laura are scheduled to be held before Medge on Thursday, October 15th at 9 a.m. in District Court 03204 in Lower Saucon Township. Interestingly, Hero has two March 2012 felony convictions, one of which is for the manufacturer, delivery, or possession with intent to manufacture or deliver drugs, and the other is for manufacturing methamphetamine in the presence of a child. He formerly served time in state prison as a result of that conviction. In other news, it's football season, and the Panthers are going to attempt to improve their record on Friday. They had a tough loss against Bangor in their first game of the season on Saturday. That was at home. Saucon Source and Saucon Athletics were there to cover the game via live stream, which was watched by at least several thousand people. 
due to limitations on spectators that are part of the COVID-19 restrictions in Pennsylvania. There were no spectators at the first game of the season. However, in the past week, Governor Wolf has issued changes in the guidelines for both indoor and outdoor events. Those are no longer being capped at 250 people. Instead, there will be a percentage of the total capacity of the venue allowed in, and um, that will increase the total number of people that can attend football games. So it's possible that at the next home game for Saucon Valley, there could be as many as 250 spectators, which is still a small number compared to the number of people the stadium can hold, but that would allow at least many of the parents of the players, cheerleaders, band members, etc. to attend. And that's been an issue. So we'll be following that story. And as soon as there's a decision made about attendance at the Saucon Valley School District Stadium, we will share that information with the community. Saucon Valley is playing Southern Lehigh on Friday. Capacity there will be limited. We will have press covering the game. We will be live streaming it once again on YouTube. Be sure to subscribe to the Saucon Athletics YouTube channel. And you can also set a reminder once the preview post for the live stream is scheduled. You can set a reminder to watch it and then you'll get a notification for that on your phone once the live stream begins. I recommend doing that because otherwise it's difficult to remember to tune in. But it's sure to be an exciting game and good luck to the Panthers as they do battle against the Spartans. We have a story currently about a new garden in Hellertown. This is at Christ Lutheran Church in Hellertown. The church is located on Main Street adjacent to Union Cemetery. This is a unique garden for our area. It's a labyrinth garden. It's actually inlaid in the ground and It was created by volunteers from the church who worked all summer on this beautiful garden. It's open to the public to enjoy. A labyrinth is something that can have a a meditative effect on people who follow it. These types of gardens are actually quite popular right now due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The Christ Lutheran Labyrinth Garden was actually planned well before the coronavirus struck. We spoke with Angela Drake of Christ Lutheran Church, who led the volunteer effort. She shared a lot of information with us about how the garden was planned and then constructed. It also features some beautiful landscaping. It's only going to be prettier as uh, the landscaping fills in. So if you don't get there this fall, you'll probably want to check it out next year in the spring. There's going to be something to enjoy there in every season. Certainly it's it's a wonderful thing that the church has shared it with, with the community. In other news, we have an update on Halloween in Coopersburg. Like Hellertown, Coopersburg's Halloween parade is canceled this year due to the COVID-19 pandemic. However, trick-or-treat is still scheduled to take place. In Coopersburg and Upper Saucon Township, trick-or-treat will be held Friday, October 30th from 6 to 8 p.m. The borough of Coopersburg is asking participants to 
follow CDC guidelines for trick-or-treat. The CDC recently issued specific recommendations and guidelines for Halloween celebrations. It has labeled trick-or-treat as conducted in the traditional door-to-door manner as a higher risk activity and it's recommending something called one-way trick-or-treating as a less risky type of modified celebration. In one-way trick-or-treating, individually wrapped goodie bags are lined up for families to essentially grab and go at the end of a driveway or the edge of a yard, and this limits the contact that the owner of the home would have with trick-or-treaters. They can certainly be watching them from a distance. It also helps to prevent trick-or-treaters from smushing together as they fight to get to the treats. So if you have a driveway or a yard that you can safely place these prepackaged treats or goodie bags on, that might be something to consider. Uh, They also recommend that you wash your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds before and after preparing anything that you're going to be handing out. Some other tips include uh, wearing Halloween-themed cloth masks that are made of two or more layers of breathable fabric, so that's pretty much standard now for face masks. Uh, Don't assume that a Halloween mask, whether it's plastic or made of some other material, is going to be protective against coronavirus. It's better to stick with the breathable cloth mask, according to the CDC. Another tip is to have a small group outdoor open-air costume parade in which people are distanced more than six feet apart. So maybe just grab some of your neighbors, make it sort of an impromptu block party rather than the big parades that we're used to. That might be something to consider. And of course, we are going to be covering Halloween here on No Rain Date. We are looking forward to welcoming an expert in the hauntings of Lehigh Valley area places, our friend Ellen Flynn, who owns the art establishment, co-owns the art establishment in Fountain Hill with her husband, Tom. Ellen's going to be a guest on a future episode of No Rain Date, and she's going to regale us with some very spine-tingling tales about Lehigh Valley locations. So I'm not going to give those away, but you're just going to have to tune in to find out what she has to say. And I guarantee it's going to be spooky. So you might want to, you know, have a stuffed animal close at hand. I'm a big fan of Halloween haunts, so I'm excited. and, And I know Ellen is too, to share that with you. We have a fall fun guide on our site, a roundup of Halloween and fall attractions in the Lehigh Valley and the Poconos. There are certainly still attractions that are open, many with modified procedures due to COVID-19, and we've included that information in the guide. Trogger's Farm Market in Kintnersville is holding their annual Oktoberfest celebration every weekend this month. You can participate in horse-drawn wagon rides as long as the weather permits. There will be hillbilly kettle corn. They have a guess the weight of the pumpkin contest and much more. Trogger's is enforcing social distancing and mask wearing. They are also offering contactless curbside pickup. Another favorite fall destination is Grimm's Orchard and Family Farms in Brinigsville. 
On fall weekends, you can pick your own apples and pumpkins or take part in fall festival activities, including hay rides, the corn maze, the apple cannon, the cattle train, the hay mountain, and much more. Grimms is following CDC, FDA, and Department of Agriculture guidelines to help keep patrons safe from COVID-19. A full list of COVID guidelines can be found on their website. Some of the other destinations listed in our guide are Houseman Fruit Farm in Coopersburg, the Country Junction Pumpkin Festival outside Lehighton, the Lehigh Gorge Scenic Railway in Jim Thorpe, Hotel of Horror in Sailorsburg, Quiet Valley Harvest Festival in Stroudsburg, Sleepy Hollow Haunted Acres, which is in Newtown, Bucks County, Bob White Acres in Coopersburg, another pick-your-own orchard destination, and the Trapdoor Poconos, which is the Poconos' largest escape room. And that's certainly something to uh, scare you this Halloween season. We also have a story about a recent event that was held at Black River Farms in Lower Saucon. This was a food and wine pairing, and it featured food by Drip the Flavor Lab, which is the reincarnation of mystical treats that will soon open on Main Street in Hellertown. We recently featured a story about the new concept for the restaurant, which replace, is replacing Mystical Treats. It's going to have a 90s after-school hangout kind of vibe and an awesome burger menu, milkshakes, ice cream, coffee will also be served, and they're going to have a license to sell craft hard cider. So put that on your to-do list, and we'll be covering the opening, which will hopefully be later this month. At the pairing, of course, there was no hard cider. It was at Black River Farms, which is a vineyard and winery in Lower Saucon. So each attendee received four hors d'oeuvres and four samples of wine to pair with them. The music was provided by singer-guitarist Seth Witcher, And it was a very relaxing early evening spent under the tents at the beautiful vineyard, which is on Black River Road near Route 378. We have many photos of that in our story about the event, so be sure to check it out. And that's the news for this week. We'll bring you more next week. Hey Panther fans, it's crunch time! Welcome back to our week two Saucon Valley High School football game preview. Friday night, the 0-1 Panthers will travel down 378 south to Southern Lehigh and do battle with the 1-0 Spartans. Kickoff is scheduled for 7 p.m. At this point, the weather is looking great. Too bad there are restrictions on spectators, however. I guess you're just going to have to sit in the comfort of your own home and watch Saucon Sources live stream. Last week, the Panthers fell to the Bangor Slaters 34-25. They had their chances, but just could not play with any sort of prolonged consistency. Southern Lehigh, who were the District 11-5A champs a year ago, defeated Northern Lehigh 21-14 last week. The Saucon Creek rivalry is alive and well. The Southern Lehigh offense, it consists of nine seniors and two juniors. The offensive line is made up of four seniors and a junior. The Spartans are primarily a running offense operating with mostly two running backs and a tight end. They will spread it out periodically and go shotgun, however they tend to run more than pass from the spread gun look as well. These Spartans will no doubt be looking to jam the ball down the Panthers throat. 
Running back, senior Jake Fazio, number 25, leads the Spartans. He carried 20 times for 112 yards last week. Sincere Jackson, senior, number 26, chipped in with 11 carries for 44 yards and a TD. Quarterback, senior J.C. Rizzuto, number 7, was 4-7 for 20 yards passing with a touchdown. On the other end of Rizzuto's touchdown pass was tight end junior Tyler Hauser, number 8. For a changeup, the Spartans will unleash their Wildcat. Senior Logan Shorb, number 12, will come into the backfield and look to do some damage. Shorb carried 13 times for 83 yards and a touchdown last week from that Wildcat look. Against Northern Lehigh last week, the Southern Lehigh offense put up 14 first downs. They had 53 rushes for 226 yards, which is a little over 4 yards per carry. They were 4 of 7 for 20 yards passing and a touchdown. They had 6 penalties for 45 yards. They punted 3 times. Sophomore inside linebacker Ty Fizzenmare and the rest of the Panther defense will have the challenge of slowing down what seems to be a pretty potent Spartan rushing attack. Flip it on over to the other side of the ball. The Southern Lehigh defense is manned with five seniors, five juniors, and a sophomore. They don't look overly big, but they are experienced and athletic. Their base defense is of the 4-3 variety. Cover three, cover two. They will man up when they blitz, and based on a Northern Lehigh game, they do like to blitz. The Panther line had better have their heads up. The Spartans appear to like to fire their middle linebacker, number 35, Blaze Curry, with some frequency. Curry dishes out the punishment and is blazing when coming up the gut of his opponent's offense. Hopefully, the Panther offensive line can swallow and stomach the red-hot Curry with few ill effects. In addition, number 12, Logan Shorb, and number 36, Justin Ballier, both like to come off the edge from their outside linebacker positions. Dual threat Dante had better be on his toes. The Spartan D is frugal, only giving up 11 first downs and 180 yards of total offense last week against the Northern Lehigh Bulldogs. Hopefully the Panthers can do better. Last week, Saucon Valley's offense wasn't bad, rolling up over 300 yards of total offense. Here are some SV stats from last week. Sophomore, number 22, Josh Torres, was good for over four yards per carry. He had 16 totes for 70 yards and a touchdown. Junior, number 12, dual threat Dante, one if by land, two if by air. Mahaffey was good, 14 for 99 yards and a touchdown on the ground, and was 11 of 22 for 151 yards and a touchdown through the air. Mahaffey is off to a great start. Junior, number 11, Ty Sensitz had eight catches for 113 yards and a touchdown. Sophomore, number 13, Alex Magnata, two catches for 31 yards. Freshman, Constantine Donahue, made his way onto the stat sheet with a catch for seven yards. Having a full week of practice and preparation under their belts, the Panthers should be putting the coronavirus hangover behind them. Saucon Valley will definitely have to put aside the miscues that plagued them last week and play a little more mistake-free football against the Spartans. It should be a great night for some high school football. Good luck, Panthers. The source is with you. Here at Sock and Source, our mission is to provide information and make it as available as possible to the people in our community. A large part of that is a public service, and we're grateful for the support we have from local advertisers because that revenue helps keep the information flowing to you, our readers and listeners. Local news production does cost money, and that's why we've also introduced a voluntary membership option on Sock and Source, and we'd like to tell you a little more about that. Essentially, the membership 
is a recurring monthly contribution that shows your support for the work that we're doing. It helps guarantee that the information will remain free and accessible to you as well as to others in our community and it also helps fund our future growth. Sock and Source is growing and we're expanding our coverage area. The more support we receive from the community, the better coverage we can provide and the more useful the site will be to you. So that's why we would invite you to visit our membership page on the website sockandsource.com. You can do that by clicking on join under my sock and source which you'll see on the right side of your screen if you're on a desktop or at the bottom of any article page. You'll see several membership options including a monthly membership for $7, a four-month membership for $25, or a yearly membership for $70. These are strictly voluntary contribution levels and they're not any part of a paywall. There's no requirement to contribute, but we are grateful for those who have already done so and we hope that you will consider purchasing a membership in the future. Doing so is quick and easy. You can do it securely online and you can cancel at any time. Thank you again to all our current members and thank you for considering becoming a future member. Welcome back to No Rain Date. I'm Josh Popachak, the host of No Rain Date and publisher of Sock and Source. And this week it's my pleasure to welcome a colleague of mine, a friend, a fellow publisher of an independent, actually two independent local news websites, Tom Sofield. Welcome, Tom. Hey, Josh. Thanks for having me. It's awesome to have you here. I just want to share a little bit of background with our listeners. We we first met when we both worked at Patch back in the early 2010s, like around 2012, I would say. And um, yeah, I think that's about right. Yeah, you were you were covering Lower Bucks, and I was up here in the Lehigh Valley, but we were all sort of in the same regional group, so we would we would have some interaction that way. And I remember first meeting you in Doylestown. You had already started Levittown now, or you were in the process of doing that. And I was like, oh, I totally want to do that, you know. And um, it wasn't until probably a year and a half later that I launched Sock and Source. But you were sort of a, uh, a role model in a way for, for me to do that, because I saw you succeeding with it. And um, that's that's something that we all need in this business, I would say, role models. Still hoping more people up in the Lehigh Valley will, will follow my lead and, and launch some more hyper-local news sites, but um, it's it's not an easy it's not an easy job and it's something you really have to love as we know. So Oh yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah it's definitely not something uh, for the faint of heart. I think at any type of business opening, I would say it's the the best worst thing that I ever did. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit first about about your background and and what you went to school for, what you expected to do as far as journalism versus what you actually ended up doing. Because I know for a lot of us, those those two things are are fairly different. And I certainly never expected to be publishing a news website, owning my you know, running my own business, selling advertising, and doing most of the things that I actually do. I really only wanted to write, which is like a small part of my day now. But tell me more about about your experiences with that. 
Yeah, so I got into working in journalism. I was always kind of interested in it. I also like the whole business side of it, probably equally as much as the journalism side. Mm-hmm. So I was in college and community college, and I was taking journalism class for my communications degree. And I ended up, our professor, Tony Rogers, who you know was a longtime reporter for Associated Press and, and some of the papers up in New York, and he worked in Boston. He always said, you know, pretty much, screw just sitting in the classroom. Why doesn't everybody go out? Go out and work on stories, and then we'll come back, talk about it, and, you know, see what you can improve and see what you can do better. So I started doing that. He made us actually set up a blog to track it and put it online. This was back in, like, 2009 or 10, before there was such a focus on digital. And to be completely honest, all the other journalism programs I had interest in, most of them were newspaper-based or really early digital. So he had us do that, and from there I started posting just little stories that I would do for class around town. They ended up getting shared all over social media, and from there that led to some of them being published in our some local weekly papers. And from there, that led to a freelancing role patch that turned into a, I guess, permalancer type job mm-hmm. uh, for about, I think I was a patch for almost two years, a little more than a year and a half. And I ended up running one site for a summer patch and then taking over the Levittown patch site in Lower Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And my job there was kind of tasked with turning it around after it had been kind of dormant for a bit. So I did that. Hurricane Sandy struck in the middle. So that Mm -hmm. definitely drove off readership, especially because Levittown was hit really hard. Um, Don't remind me. Without power for... Yeah. for more than 15 days oh my god and uh, yeah it was wild I, it was probably the first time i've ever seen you know the, the military national guard and fema brought in mres huh. and had to pass them out to people because all the grocery stores didn't have power and there weren't enough generators to to bring in meats and stuff to keep everything cold so wow the red cross was handing out these meals that were delivered by the government uh but it was for journalism, it was like a hundred hour week, but it was just such a a real world crash course. Mm-hmm. I mean, you were covering everything from crimes to human interest stories, to fires, to storm cleanup. So from there, Patch was starting to have some financial issues. It was becoming clear. I always thought they didn't focus enough on sales and that we had too many journalists, which is fine, but you also need to be able to afford them. So I kind of, started applying to jobs and figuring out maybe what I wanted to do after. And then my contract with Patch came to an end at the end of February, 2013. And I had already kind of formulated launching Levittown now. So I did that. And I kind of brought a lot of the readers that were still following months later, the Hurricane Sandy cleanup coverage over. Patch didn't really fill the my role immediately. So it gave me some time to kind of scoop scoop them on the uh, on a lot of big stories mm-hmm. so we, we've grown and now almost eight years later we're still around thankfully still in business and we're still serving the community hoping to grow even more over the next few years yeah wow i mean like hearing hearing you talk about that stuff for one thing it brings back a lot of memories for me hurricane sandy for sure even though here it wasn't as bad but yeah i mean I remember working in my car, you know, because I had no power for like a week in my house. And 
you know, just my boss was like, well, just do the best you can, you know, like that was like her mantra. And that was sort of like a mantra for Patch in a lot of ways. And I can't believe that they didn't offer you a full-time position when your contract came to an end. I mean, that's just crazy. But but that's kind of like how the company was being run at that point. And yeah, uh, was there was always new management involved, and I was actually offered a full time position up in North Jersey, hmm. right when my permalance contract ran out. But the crazy thing was, I was making more as a permalancer than a new position would have been, right? Uh, because at that point they were really trying to cut costs, so it, it was not even worth it for me to move and go to a whole different area. And I mean, with patches. Kind of trajectory and what happened a few years later i guess i was kind of glad i didn't yeah uh, but you know patch was a really great learning experience and there's still people all the time in the communities that i covered and the community i cover now who mentioned patch mm-hmm. like they remember all our reporting from it because it was so key and, and in most towns you know i know uh, the Salkin valley is lucky and a, a lot of other places where local sites have cropped up but in a lot of places nothing ever replaced patch uh, right. i just saw in the uh, how my parents live. Their patch has kind of gone dormant and hasn't really posted anything of any value since midsummer. I think they call it a community platform now. Mm-hmm. So they're just hoping people submit things and it's not vetted. It's not really, uh, really news. Yeah. So it's unfortunate. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't be here doing what I'm doing if it hadn't been for patch because we learned a lot good and and bad some of it was you know what not to do but i but that's you know important too and you were just a little bit ahead of me ahead of the curve i was on as far as you know getting out of there but but i think i sort of wanted to do all the same things and and basically for the same reasons you know very attached to my area you spend all this time setting up networks who wants to like walk away from that you know like right just to to start all over again it it doesn't make a lot of sense so um yeah and i think hurricane sandy like personally taught me the importance that local journalism has you know people necessarily want to wait till the next day for the paper and to be completely honest, you know, one thing people were getting was where to pick up meals. Mm-hmm. Another thing was, you know, the National Guard was called in at night because almost everybody didn't have power in an area of like 150,000 people. So there was kind of rumors flying around about what might happen. We were able to yeah. share information on charging stations. And that really showed me how important it was where people, even all the way to 2012, were still mainly getting information through a printed newspaper that showed up every morning. And while the people at the, the paper, the Courier Times, did a great job of getting the paper out every day, their website wasn't updated as much as uh, the Levittown Patch site was. And that's where, I mean, it seemed like, it, it almost felt like everyone was getting information, which grocery stores were open, which had meats. Yep. So, so that was just key stuff that people needed. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I mean, not that I want another natural disaster, but like if when that ever happens, you know, if it happens, that's when you make your name, you know, doing what we do. Right. Like, so, so yeah, you're going to work a hundred hours a week, but it's also like a golden opportunity, you know, to be grateful for because it comes along like once in a blue moon. I mean, you'll probably get thousands of new Facebook followers or, or you know, email, you know, subscribers or, or whatever, if that happens. And, 
and people will really respect you and remember that you you were there in a time of crisis you know they're never going to forget that because people still talk to me about sandy or the year before that was when we had the snowstorm here on halloween which i don't think you had that but like that was like almost apocalyptic here because right there were people here that didn't have power for like three weeks because all the trees still had leaves on them and we had six inches of snow so that was that was only a year before and uh you know halloween 2013 everybody was like terrified thinking you know what's gonna happen this time but yeah knock on wood we haven't had any any big natural disasters really recently we had the hurricane in, in august but um and we had some flooding here but it wasn't wasn't anything close to that i mean when you lose power for for you know hundreds of thousands of people for like weeks that's that's really major Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's been kind of interesting looking back, like just how impactful Hurricane Sandy was in our region, because we did just this year during the tropical storm down here, there were high winds. So we had almost 30,000 customers without power, which I think is the highest since Hurricane Sandy. Mm -hmm. But what was different was within three or four days, almost everybody had their power back. Uh, When they look back to Sandy and even one of the ice storms a year or two after, like you said, there were people out two, three weeks. I mean, yeah, it wasn't huge numbers, but in the 21st century, it's kind of amazing to think that there can still be in a heavily populated area of power outage that lasts weeks. Yeah, no, absolutely. I kind of want to go back to what you were talking about with your, I guess it was your professor who, who was emphasizing like going out into the community as opposed to just being in the classroom. That's another big one that, you know, I think... I mean, I never studied journalism at all, not in a formal way. Everything I learned was basically on the job. And I remember in the beginning, I was like, how do you find news? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> like literally I I was hired to be a reporter. I'm like, okay, well, where do I find the news? You know, and um, people ask me that now. And, and now it's like, well, how, how do I get away from the news? Like, because, you know, you get to a point where like, you know, you can't. You can't turn it off, really. But yeah, I mean, if I was, you know, had an intern or right now or anything like that, I mean, the first thing I'd do would be, is be like, you know, go out and find a story. You know, just walk Main Street until you find a story. You know, it's it's not that hard. You know, you just have to have your eyes open. And then that's how you learn, really. And that's how you become a good journalist. And you don't learn that in school, really. I mean... Right, and that was always Tony's, uh, still is Tony's philosophy. I still talk to Tony and mm-hmm. help him if he needs anything, and he sends me sometimes interns or freelancers, and that's always his thing. His thing was always go out there and do it. You're never going to find news sitting in it behind the desk. Right. So he would just have us go out either to campus or one of the nearby towns, or he'd say, you know, show up at your township building uh, for the next meeting and see what you come back with. And, and that was kind of, that's his philosophy. Mm-hmm. I think it was smart because, uh, you know, I've worked with people before who just have kind of sitting behind a desk and, and doing theory uh, mm-hmm. type journalism experience. And I always find, so, not all of them, but some of them I'm surprised with how little they know about like going out and finding, you know, yeah, they can write a feature or they can write a story where everything's set up. But kind of those situations in journalism, like breaking news or, or a court case, 
they have no idea and it's so overwhelming to them, uh, especially breaking news where you kind of show up and you have no idea what's going on mm-hmm. and you need to try to figure it out. And it's definitely intimidating when you're in a new area right. uh, that you've never covered. But even being in an area where I've covered for years now, there's always something new. You need to try to figure out who's willing to talk, you know, who's in charge, what exactly is happening, because what it looks like isn't always what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just so many factors to it in, in navigating the courts and navigating public records. That's things I think journalism schools don't always teach. Yeah. And that's an important thing to do. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about about Levittown, the area, and you know, not not all of my listeners may be that familiar with the area that you cover, but it's it's a heavily populated area. It's a lot bigger than Saucon Valley for sure, and you have like more of development. You have more big city issues, probably crime. What's you know, what are some of the hot topics you're covering right now? Sure. So Levittown, so our coverage area is the nine towns that are the that make up the Levittown, I guess, census-designated place and the surrounding communities, which is a pretty big area. It's about 150,000 people. William Levitt was a developer from New York. He built homes uh, where, where usually veterans could take advantage of the GI Bill, move in, and he bought all these tracts of farmland in Lower Bucks County between Bristol and Langhorne. And he ended up building 17,000 homes of just a few designs. So they all kind of looked the same in the early years. And and it's made up of four townships. William Levitt wanted to make Levittown like he did Levittown, New York, and have it an actual town. Mm-hmm. But the municipalities in Pennsylvania, as you know, Josh, from covering them, are steeped in tradition and little fiefdoms. Mm-hmm. And in the 1950s, none of them wanted to merge. So Levittown just became the name of a community and a postal code and census designated place, but it's made up of Bristol Township, Falls Township, Middletown Township, and Tollytown Borough. And mm. within there, there's 17,000, about 17,500 William Levitt built homes, mm. and then some older, smaller developments and later developments that have come up. But it really was seen as a kind of pioneering at the time. Nobody's ever built mass developments like this. Right. Um, and sometimes people do say it's like the biggest suburb of Philadelphia, even though it's not really one municipality. Mm-hmm. Um, but Levittown's diverse and interesting. I mean, there were race riots here when the Myers family moved in, the first black family, and, and mm. ranges our coverage area, uh, which is also surrounded by some really historic. We're in Langhorn Borough. Mm-hmm. And the office building that we're in dates back to the 1700s hmm. to the Revolutionary War. It was actually a hospital following the Battle of Trenton where the American soldiers were brought back to be treated after the battle on Christmas. So it's a, an area with a long history and also a very modern history. And it's unique, both race-wise and religion-wise and also socioeconomic. Uh, it ranges from low to no income to million dollar homes within just a a short distance. Mm -hmm. And that kind of makes things interesting. I know in politics, they always use this area as kind of a bellwether to to judge the national races just because the local makeup of the population is so similar to the national population. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that always makes it interesting to cover. I mean, I, I know just in the past week, there's been a Japanese TV station and a Norwegian, uh, talk show here. (laughs) filming interviews on the upcoming uh, uh, presidential election. <laughs> so it's kind of that tradition every four years, you have every news organization in the world just parachute in. Right. But it's a really unique area. We're on the Delaware River, so you have that. 
We're only a few minutes away from kind of dense woods. We're near a bunch of highways, I-95, 295, the Turnpike, Route 1. So it's also has a bit of a transient population of people staying for the weekend or causing trouble going between major cities. The Levittown area is only a few minutes from Philadelphia and about an hour and a half from New York. Mm. Uh, so it definitely makes it an interesting place to cover everything from kind of small town issues to small city type issues uh, that you wouldn't see. So it's unique. It's something new every day. And I have to give a shout out to uh, Bristol Borough because I'm partial to Bristol because <laughs> my grandmother's from Bristol. I haven't been back there in, in a number of years, but that's a fascinating community. Talk about historic. And I think you you were telling me that it's undergone some gentrification recently or... Yeah, yeah, I know. We need to get you back down to Bristol Borough. Yeah. So Bristol Borough goes back to kind of William Penn, who who lived actually in Falls Township right up the river. Mm-hmm. Uh, he built his mansion. It's called Pensbury Manor. It's a state park now. But yeah, Bristol Borough has a really neat history because it was kind of the big city mm-hmm. between Philadelphia and Trenton. And it had port. They built warships. And, and it, it seemed, like you said, a gentrification in recent years of more people moving in. And that is just a really diverse place. I mean, you have kind of sections of town that are old Italian and old Irish and African-American. And there's more immigrants moving in. So it's really unique and it has a lot of uh, history and also the uh, King George Inn on the river is is pretty famous. Um, I think it was established in like 1681 and it was kind of the place where everyone stopped when they were taking their horse from New York City to Philadelphia. And it was at one point, I think it still is the oldest or the longest continually operated restaurant in the entire country. You must have some uh, some haunted places around there then. Yeah, you know, yeah, they say the building's haunted. Uh, actually, in the basement, they have prison cells from... So when people were transporting prisoners hundreds of years ago, they could put them in the basement in the cells and, and sleep upstairs in the inn overnight. Yeah, I would want to check that place out on Halloween, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know what they say, our office building's haunted being a, a hospital, but I've, I've been here till 2 or 3 in the morning before, and the most uh, frightening thing I saw was when the cleaning people forgot their keys and sounded like they were going to break in the door and uh, murder me. But <laughs> I think ghosts just don't want to show themselves to reporters. They're just shy. <laughs> yeah, they know they're... we take a picture. Right, exactly. <laughs> No, I definitely want to get down there. Um, I've been talking about it, and uh, it's not that far away. It's just you know, you know, we're we're just at opposite ends of Bucks County, basically. So, right. Well, um, that's always the problem with Bucks County. There's no like highway to get from right. the northern part of Bucks County, and and where Hellertown is just above Bucks County. Yeah. Down to Bristol, it's all kind of back roads, which end up taking a while. Right. Or or you have to take the turnpike, but then you're kind of going away from where you are from where i am right yeah um, you have to go all the way into montgomery county and then loop down to get to bristol right yeah it seems like i i, I go to like doylestown or buckingham or new hope i mean even i was in newtown not that long ago because i was covering i was uh writing about the wineries the bucks county wine okay, right gotta give them a shout out and uh and that's not that far, but I just never seem to make it all the way down to where you are. But but maybe maybe later this year, like around the holidays or something, 
be fun. Yeah, we uh, we actually had a family member who was from Coopersburg, so we took him up to Hellertown a few months ago. We didn't end up telling you we were there because we were only there so quickly, but we mm-hmm. drove him up and he stopped by a, a friend's house. And we ended up, which was a really nice commute, taking River Road all the way from Regalsville and taking that all the way down to Morrisville and then jumping on the highway and getting to Bristol. And it was actually yeah. a really nice, probably hour and a quarter drive. It was in the fall time. Yeah. So it was oh, perfect yeah. with the leaves. If you can drive it right now, it is absolutely gorgeous, that drive. Talk about, it should be like one of the top 10 scenic drives, I think, certainly in this area. Yeah, I would agree. You, you've you covered some big stories. One of the ones that comes to mind was the Cosmo DiNardo case, which had, you know, sort of feelers all over Bucks County. What was it like covering that? And you were even interviewed for like a documentary about it, right? Yeah, yeah. So that was a really unique story. Uh, I mean, there's been a, with a lot of town kind of being so, so diverse, small town, big city type of feel. There's been a whole bunch of things that have gone national, but I don't think anything like that in the aspect of it kind of became this, this mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of took hold all over the internet on a very social media and uh, message boards. Um, there was media from all over by the end of the week, pretty much all over the, the world following it. And, and it was this bizarre case where this guy, Cosmo Donardo, had some mental health issues and behavior problems, ended up killing four young guys at his family's farm up by Peddler's Village in, the, in Solbury Township in Central Bucks County. But these four victims, three were from Bucks County and one was from Montgomery County. They were kind of from all parts of the county. So one one lived just a few minutes from where our office is here in Langhorne. Another lived a few minutes away in Newtown. Uh, so there was a real local angle to it. And it was unique to cover because we had covered the, the one young man who went missing, Dean Finnecaro. We covered him over the weekend when he was first reported as a missing person. And it wasn't until more than 24 hours later it started to come together that something really bad had happened. Hmm. And it turned out in the end, Cosmo DiNardo and his cousin Sean Kratz of Philadelphia had murdered the four of them and tried to cover it up. We had a pretty exhaustive police investigation that involved everyone from the FBI to local police from Bucks County, Montgomery County, and, and New Jersey. Ended up cracking the case and recovering the bodies, and, and the case had conspiracy theories linked to it. I still get emails from all different parts of the country and even the world about the case. So it's been interesting, and I took part in a Discovery ID documentary called The Lost Boys of Bucks County. I did some consulting with them and then was interviewed on it. And they put together actually a pretty good two-hour documentary that was well-received. Hmm. That did a good job of showcasing the victims mm-hmm. uh, and not just the criminals. Uh, and they had support of most of the families. So that was a key thing to do. But it was just an interesting case to see how some of the national media and tabloids come in and in all honesty, how they misreported the story. Right. But even local residents were citing their reporting just because I think if they see it on CNN or Fox News or New York Times, they were, you know, they were kind of enthralled with them covering their community instead of us who were the, the local guys who were covering it. But also what kind of made it different is I think we were a little bit more self-conscious of our reporting because we knew the families were reading our coverage because they lived right in our community. We we knew some of the distant family members, so it was really unique and just a sad story altogether. Yeah, no, I mean, and I don't, I don't know that I ever really understood the motive. Like, 
do you have feel like you have a good understanding of what it was? Well, it's always kind of the question. From all the sources I've talked to, they kind of think Cosmo DiNardo killed Jimmy Patrick first. And then he just realized he was screwed. So when he got his cousin, they ended up killing the other three, the three young men. And, and from there, he, he also was very boastful and, and had a huge ego. So that might have been part of it, too. He wanted to make a name for himself. But they've never really determined the full, the full cause of it. And it's a shame. Yeah. Yeah, and definitely a shame four young lives lost for for no no real reason yeah and such a vicious and kind of the fact that there is no clear answer to what happened i think makes it a more difficult case yeah i want to kind of change gears here a little bit and talk talk sort of about the business side of our business and and that's obviously important because there wouldn't be any news if we couldn't you know support ourselves and and you know run a successful business in publishing. You obviously sell advertising, like I do, and that's one way you generate revenue. You also have a, a voluntary like membership program where people can contribute and support your local news that way. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so most of our revenues comes from advertising. While with our membership program, we call it the In the Know Club, that's really grown over the past few years, uh, which we're happy about. We'd like to grow it more. We, we've never really promoted it too much because I think I'm always nervous it's not going to be good. Uh, but so <laughs> far, we have a very low churn rate, and we've done it for three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but w- what readers get is they kind of get quarterly events we host. We used to host them in person before the pandemic. Uh, we hosted a virtual tourism forum in summer. And that was pretty well received. And actually this month we're, we're finalizing kind of a Halloween themed event. And we also are gonna have a pre-election discussion with the political analysts coming in hmm. uh, that will be streaming to our users, but they also get text message news alerts. So what's really cool is, I mean, I've had it happen before where I've been at a scene or a reporter's been at a scene and they've been able to actually type out a short alert, you know, let's say shooting at, you know, Johnson and Gold Street Mm-hmm. one person killed, uh, more information to come. So they'll text it, and it might be another 30, 40 minutes before we can really confirm enough to publish a full story or put pictures together. Right. So these readers are kind of getting it first. And one thing that's been really popular, especially before coronavirus, when there's a lot more cars on the road, we'll send traffic alerts for major traffic incidents. So we've had plenty of people tell us they were about to take I-95 or they were on Route 1. Someone alert come through saying, you know, dump truck overturned or two car accident with serious injuries, avoid the area. And they've done that. They've avoided it. And they're kind of finding out first. Uh, they're finding out the second we confirm it, we're pushing it out. We've also used some of the funds from that to support reporting projects. Uh, we did a series on heart illnesses and women, something that's kind of overlooked often. It's helped fund and is presently helped funding investigative reporting into one of our school districts where there's been former administrators who have filed lawsuits. Uh, the superintendents become embattled and we know the FBI and state attorney general's office are also asking questions about the school district and its operations. It's helped pay for lawyer fees that we've had to pay before we've run stories and also requesting documents and kind of fighting to get some documents in court. Uh, so it's been a really great program. And it's nice that I've gotten to know a lot of those readers who are members. 
Mm -hmm. uh, from seeing them. And we hope it's kind of a mutually beneficial experience because, you know, if we can't pay our bills, we're not going to be reporting news anymore. Right. That's, I love, I love how you've enunciated that and, and how you've, you know, built up the, in the, in the no club. And, and that's sort of something that I'd like to emulate eventually on sock and source we have a we have a membership program but it's it's sort of you know no frills at this point and i definitely want to grow it and and provide more benefit to it i think you know it's it's a great alternative to a paywall which you know I, you know many more places have paywalls now and you know that's unfortunately part of the reality that you know news producing news is expensive and Right. Many people still don't seem to get that, and and especially quality news. And then when you want to grow grow the news that you're producing and grow your coverage area, it costs even more. So there has to be you know revenue streams in addition to advertising. And unfortunately, I think most people aren't. It's it's not a model that's been around a long time. This you know type of right. membership club. I mean, people understand you know, donating to public television, but that's kind of seen separately from like our type of news business. So right. I mean, and, that's... and I think one thing I've tried to do is be transparent with where the funds are going for the membership, showing mm -hmm. them like, Hey, here's some of the stuff you've produced during the early days of the pandemic. Like you made up for the loss in advertising. We were able to, you know, write these stories on how to get unemployment benefits or a, a story on parents who were coping with their kids being home all the time during coronavirus. Right. So that's been kind of good. And I mean, the one thing you and I are both members of uh, local independent online news publishers. And the nice thing with that, it's an organization that has publishers across the U.S. and Canada, kind of like us, from one man bands to, you know, 10, 15 employees. And we, we all kind of share information. So the membership program came after talking to a lot of them of what worked best and what what mm -hmm. didn't work and what products they would use. So that's been a huge benefit for kind of small guys like us. Right. We can all kind of work together to, you know, improve our product. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I did want to give a shout out to Lion, which is a great resource for, for independent publishers like us. And I've been a member since shortly after launching, and I know you have too. And I'm bummed that they're not having their their conference this year because I wanted to go to Seattle. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but we've both been to some of the conferences in Chicago, and and it's it's amazing because like it's like when you get all these independent publishers, and probably the majority are like us. They're they really don't have you know many staff people, if any. You know, you have like you just can't talk fast enough because like you're finally with people that understand what you do and right <laughs> and and you want to like talk about what you do but you also want to hear what they're doing you know because you you just can't soak up the information fast enough in that setting no no i was going to say you and i have traded so many good notes you know i, I know when covering the cosmo Donardo and sean Kratz, those murders I had two reporters, Eric and Amanda, kind of working, felt like 24-7 that week, mm -hmm. trying to track down details. I was up at the scene uh, with Eric, or like, you know, some days from six in the morning till uh, midnight or one. And, but what was great with Lion Publishers was Doug Hardy, one of the members from Connecticut, and uh, I think 
Dylan Smith were able to kind of help me out and proofread stuff or mm. or run out ideas off of them. So that was a huge benefit. I know there's been some other line publishers who have had connections to my area or, you know, I've just known and I've been able to kind of help them out with some things or point them in the right direction or, or share photos or content with them. Uh, so it's kind of one of the advantages. You know, it's a little informal sometimes, but it's just a bunch of small business people working together. Right. No, I feel like I've worked more with pe- other people from within Lion than, like, there's more cooperation with them than I had with some of the people when I was in Patch, you know, other right. Patch employees. <laughs> so it it really is good to have support system. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, we are all, you know, different and, and we all have unique markets and, you know, not everything that, you know, works in Nashville or Seattle or Levittown is going to work in Hellertown, but but at least if we're like exchanging ideas, you know that can always be the genesis of something down the road. Yeah, I mean I think that's what's always cool in it, you know, running a small business like you do and talking to small business owners. That's something that I do hear often. Some small business owners feel like they're kind of alone, mm-hmm. uh, and this is like a big ocean, no matter what type of field they're in. So I think one nice thing, and I guess I'm lucky for in our business, there are so many people who are willing to work together and talk where I don't necessarily feel alone. Even if it's something, you know, we had an issue with somebody who was working for us a few years ago, I was able to talk to some line members who dealt with similar experiences and it kind of gave me some ideas and kind of talked me through where, you know, the lawyer was giving his lawyerly advice. Someone who worked here with me, one of our salespeople at the time, was kind of giving me their opinion of the person because of their thoughts. Uh, where it was nice to get like an outside voice. I didn't feel so alone in having to make tough decisions. Right. No, I, I hear you on that one. Before we, we wrap up, like I just wanted to touch on something else that we've we've talked about in the past. And, you know, that would be a huge change in the way legal, legal ads are published in Pennsylvania. And right now um, the law is kind of antiquated and... It only, you know, it only basically allows municipalities to to publish required legal ads for upcoming meetings and hearings and that type of thing in print newspapers. And boy, does that really need to change, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that goes back to one of those things in Pennsylvania where it's very antiquated. And you and I have talked about this, like you said. And I know I hear from several municipalities I cover. You know, if they want to get a legal notice that doesn't need 10 or 14 days advance notice, they pretty much have one source and they charge several hundred dollars for something that, you know, in all honesty, it's in the print paper and nobody really sees it. I don't even know if it's online. Uh, And they've tried to come to us because they know we have more readers in their municipality. And it's a shame the laws in Pennsylvania just constrict us from being able to take that business. And I think it would make it more competitive uh, the way the current law is written. It kind of provides government support for only printed newspapers that charge a subscription fee where we're free and we're reaching more readers in our coverage area than our daily printed paper is. Right. But unfortunately, our towns have to spend money and they, they can't get their ads out there. And there's no competition. It's pretty much them or one of the weekly papers. And the weekly papers need two weeks advance notice. And most towns don't have their agendas finalized two weeks out. It's it's a weird it's a weird situation because it feels like the taxpayers are kind of getting screwed twice because they're paying 
the taxes, which ultimately, you know, are used to pay for the ad, then they don't even see the ad because they don't, they right. probably don't see the print paper. And so, you know, they don't even know about what's going on. But then when you try and tell them, you know, we need to change this, you kind of get a look like, well, why, you know, like, and I think that's, right. that's kind of just because people are biased against local news or, you know, think it's not that important. It's so important. We had a huge issue earlier this year with zone proposed rezoning in Hellertown. And, you know, the only reason I knew about it was because I saw a photo of a tiny sign that had to be put on the property that somebody had shared in a Facebook group. You know, if I hadn't seen that, I wouldn't have known about it. And then I ended up writing about it and it became a big story and council approved it, but then the mayor vetoed it and it, it had major repercussions for, for people that live in that area. And I, it, it was very close that I didn't even have the story at all, you know? So if, if that can happen to me, you know, and I'm a publisher of news, like it's happening, you know, all the time and, and affecting, you know, regular people. So it's, you yeah, know, I mean, we have an example here, uh, the, the weekly papers that require kind of two weeks notice for public notices, they survive on public notices. It used to be like eight or nine separate little town weekly papers. And some of them at one point were daily. Uh, they got bought by a huge hedge fund consolidated into one paper now for the whole county and, and there's one reporter left there used to be each paper had like three or four reporters now there's one for the entire county he works out of montgomery county 30 minutes away is that the Pottstown paper? Um, uh no he well he works out of the uh the lansdale reporter building oh, okay. or at least he did maybe, maybe that's been sold or consolidated and he's a good reporter he does great work but the problem is the paper, I just saw circulation stats, they're under 3,000 and they cover an area of 350,000, if not more. And, but they survive from what I'm told pretty much only on legal notices because they know some of the towns that can plan their meetings two weeks out, usually the smar smaller boroughs or planning and zoning commissions advertise. And it's kind of like, uh, nobody's seen it, but this business model is just to take legal notices because they qualify under and this antiquated state law. Well, yeah, I can I can believe that. Certainly not a good business practice to ha only have like one one remaining customer because what if what if they go, you know, you're you're out of business. But but right. I guess and I mean I know I've done the math. If we got legal notices for half the municipalities we cover, we could afford adding a full time reporter. Right. Uh, just in our, our nine towns. So if we got about half those legal notices, that's not including the legal notices from the county, which would probably still go to the countywide newspapers or the Philadelphia Inquirer. But that's just the local town and charging a lesser rate than the daily paper. We could afford a full time reporter. And I honestly think we could afford two or come very close to having two just with those. And I mean, that just shows kind of what a racket it is it, you know pretty much only one or two places can qualify for it yeah no we definitely and both of those are owned from out of town one's a hedge fund and one's a publicly traded company that slashed the newspaper staff by 75 percent in four years yeah no the the hedge fund ownership of newspapers is is a whole other topic but not not a fan 
of that business right. model for, <laughs> for many reasons. And, and you saying that made me think of a New York Times story I read a few months ago. It was about, I think it was called like The Last Reporter or something like that. And it was a huge right. story about a guy that has worked for the Pottstown Mercury for like 30 some years. And now he has to work out of his attic crawl space and you know he you know it was sort of like this um not mr smith goes to washington but kind of like that where you know at the end of the story he goes to this hedge fund you know owner's home estate in long island and sort of like confronts him and it's sort of anticlimactic because the guy won't even give him the time of day and uh, it's just really sad But that was kind of what happened with Patch, too. Yeah, that was the Pottstown Mercury, and that was, like, one of the most acclaimed kind of small-town, and it's not even a small-town, small-town for the Philadelphia region, but if you were out in the middle of the country or rural Pennsylvania, that would Mm -hmm. probably be a pretty big town. But kind of one of those small-town papers that had a huge staff. I believe they won Pulitzer Prize. Mm -hmm. They had, like, a whole photography department. They had this really beautiful and iconic building in their downtown. And I think he's the only one left. I mean, we see it right across the river in Trenton, New Jersey. The Trentonian, you know, an award-winning tabloid with, you know, some of the most famous kind of front-page covers in, in like, modern America. And they're down to just two or three reporters. Huh. And they're in this massive building. And there's really no need to have that big of a building until they, they're looking to sell it. Wow. But it's a shame to see what... They, they still do good work, but it's a shame to see what has become of... You know, really, what was like a storied name in journalism? Yeah, it's it's like we're losing all our all our icons, sort of, and uh, most of them. Right. And Trenton is the state capital too. I mean, like, right. If if they're not making it, you know, something's really wrong. Um, yeah, and the crazy thing is, I mean, these papers, there was numbers that leaked out. They still make in the Philadelphia region you know, double digit millions of dollars in profit. They're just not investing back in the product. And I mean, unfortunately it looks like up in your area, the morning call, which is another really famous paper nationally for a medium sized metro area has been a huge paper. And you know, they have a hedge fund moving in and they've done some layoffs and they're selling their building. You know, it doesn't look good for the future. Yeah. Well, and they've, they've also implemented, you know, things that I don't think help like their their paywall is very right restrictive and I think in a case like that where your your ad revenue is already down you know you you implement something like that well it further restricts people's ability to see ads and advertisers aren't stupid I mean why would I want to buy an ad that's behind a paywall and people can't even see it you know like right you know, and they don't have the the resources to cover cover things consistently anymore. You know, they'll do hit and run journalism, like I call it. You know, and just move in. You know, parachute in for the big stories, but the regular day to day stuff, you can't count on them. You know, people say call the morning right. call. Well, nobody's going to answer. You know, it's just a shame because yeah, growing up we had much more diversity of newspapers and who is the consumer that won you know because they had a lot more news and quality news right so we could talk about this for hours (laughs) (laughs) 
yeah, we'll we'll have to maybe have you on again and and do like a part two because there's a lot of things I wanted to ask you about that I didn't get to. But I want to thank you for for joining us and definitely encourage all of my listeners to visit levittownnow.com. You also have a spoof site, right? Levittown Later that yeah, sort of yeah, pays tribute. <laughs> and that's kind of a form of flattery in a way, right? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. Yeah, there's Love a Town Later and kind of a similar one, which I think is run by the same person, is Fear and Loathing in Love a Town. <laughs> I didn't know about that one. That's good. So that makes it really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I have a little spoof Facebook page, but I don't think it's... <laughs> I've seen yours, too. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very infrequent that anything is posted there, but it's out there, so... People can find it. Pop Jopacek, right? The the real Posh Jopacek, it's or something like that. <laughs> and it's like a picture of me with a monocle. <laughs> and that's been around um, for, yeah, right. for a few it's, years. Uh, it's a form of flattery. Yeah, yeah. I remember being worried about it when I first saw it, and then you know, people from Lion were like, "Well, you're not really in the business until you have at least one of those." So. It made me feel better. But yeah, but you, I mean, you do a killer job with Levittown now. I mean, you're all over the place, you know, publishing oodles of content daily, way more than I do. <laughs> um, but like I said, you no, have, I appreciate it. You have a, a ton of news and um, definitely subscribe. And, and if you're in that area, you know, check out the In the Know, in the know Club. We'll have to get together uh, one of these days, whether you're up here or I'm down there, and and uh, catch up some more. Perfect. I look forward to it. All right. Thank you, Tom. Always good to talk to you. Same. Thanks, Josh. We've been recording No Rain Date since late 2019, and we've produced a fair number of episodes at this point. We would love to to hear your feedback about what we're doing. What makes you tune in every week? What ideas do you have for interview guests? Is there something that you think the podcast is missing? Feel free to share your thoughts, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent with us. You can do that by emailing josh at josh at sockandsource.com. No Rain Date is a local news and information podcast, and we focus on the Saucon Valley. However, our guests are from the Lehigh Valley and beyond. So please try and keep that in the back of your mind when you're thinking about ideas for future episodes. Thank you. No Rain Date is an original production of Saucon Source LLC. Our theme music is provided by This Way to the Egress. For more great music by them, be sure to follow This Way to the Egress on Spotify. Thank you for listening.